endocannabinoid system, CBD. anandamide, endocannabinoid deficiency, THC, CBG, cannabis, the bliss molecule. The American CBD. Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine welcomes you to AGEM Live, interviews with physicians on the front lines of endocannabinoid medicine and the scientists behind the industry's top research trials. Can you talk about some of the research out there and how it's conducted regarding exploring the effects of CBD? Was this the first clinical trial anywhere to explore the relationship between cannabis and autism? Can you talk a little bit about what your experience was when you were working with those patients and trying to find decent or adequate treatment options for them and what your limitations might have been? On today's episode... This is not a substitution therapy. This is about taking the substance, depending on the study, only one, two, or three times under medical supervision. And then we're seeing outcomes that appear to be lasting for many months, even a year or more later. Hello, this is Larry Luxner reporting for AGM Live from Insight 2023 in Berlin. We're talking with Dr. Matthew Johnson, professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. Dr. Johnson is considered a pioneer in the use of psychedelic drugs to treat smoking cessation, depression, cancer distress, and several other indications. He's also a consultant to Negev Labs, an Israeli-based venture capital company that funds startups in the psychedelic drug space. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us, Matt. Yeah, my pleasure. What brings you to this conference in Berlin? Uh, what were your expectations and uh, what did you get out of it? Well, a big airplane brought me here, but uh, corny jokes aside, it's a conference that I've, this is my third time attending. Last time, unfortunately, was virtual due to the pandemic, but I was here at the inaugural event, and it's been a, a mind foundation that, that runs it as an excellent organization here in Berlin. And, uh, you know, every time I've been here, there's been great science represented and great clinicians and a whole lot of interest in the psychedelic research field. Wonderful. Uh, how did you start in psychedelic research? If you could walk us through a bit uh, about your background as a psychiatrist and as a scientist in general. So I'm an experimental psychologist, although I do work in the psychiatry department, but I've had a long-standing interest in a variety of psychoactive drugs. I've done drug research, administering, you name it, like alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, methamphetamine, benzodiazepines, the list goes on and on. So I really, really focused on studying psychoactive drugs, mainly what you call drugs of abuse, um, but also ones with therapeutic applications. And so I had a long-standing interest, uh, even before my graduate work, uh, in conduct, picking up on the therapeutic work of these drugs from the night that was done so much in the 1950s and 1960s. And so I, I was able to start that work when I was in Johns Hopkins in 2004. And since that time, we've seen a tremendous uh, progress in psychedelics to the point where now, uh, uh, last month, uh, Australia became the first country in the world to actually downregulate psychedelics. Yeah, they're allowing the, the medical use, so it's uh, going to be legal, or I guess is at this point legal to you know for physicians to um, prescribe and to in, in a, a clinic setting to provide folks for therapeutic treatment. And so yeah, it's it's incredible. The world will be looking to see how that experiment goes. Now in the United States, uh, psychedelics are not legal in any state and in under any capacity except in clinical trials in, in very limited, uh, very limited uh, forms. Is that correct? Well, some states have decriminalized or even um, in a couple of cases legalized at the state level. Although, for folks familiar, that would be the same situation as. as 
case with with uh, cannabis, which is still legal across the country, and so even if states don't have their own laws, there is still a, a bit of a legal limbo there. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to psychedelics, specifically MDMA, uh, uh, psilocybin, can we talk about the uh, the evolution of those two, since they seem to be uh, far and ahead the most accepted of psychedelics at this point? Yeah, so MDMA is poised to be the first potentially approved within the year um, in the United States by the FDA for the treatment of PTSD. And that's been good work conducted by colleagues at the organization MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, with psilocybin, the leading indication uh, at this point would be for treating major depressive disorder, what we all know as depression. Um, with close behind that, um, the treatment of addiction, both tobacco addiction, which is work that I've done in a number of studies now, and the treatment of alcoholism or alcohol addiction, work that's really been championed by Michael, Michael Bogenschutz, who's now at New York University. Is there a concern, though, that you are treating uh, or replacing one addiction with another? Well, that's a good question. It's a, uh, one that often comes when treating uh, addiction with psychedelics, but the important thing to let folks know is this is not a substitution therapy. Um, people might be familiar with methadone, for example, for the treatment of opioid dependence, such as heroin, or even nicotine patch, nicotine gum for the treatment of tobacco smoking addiction. Those, you take the medication every day to curb your withdrawal. This is about taking the substance, depending on the study, only one, two, or three times under medical supervision. And then we're seeing outcomes that appear to be lasting for many months, even a year or more later. So uh, psilocybin, for example, this is an oral drug. It's in pill form. Uh, this is a one and done or maybe twice or maybe maximum three pills and that's it? Those are the models that we've explored so far. It does seem clear in the future of the field that for at least some people that don't see success that it may be helpful to have a follow-up uh, session and research will have to figure out what the timing of that looks like. And also as we're getting into uh, some of the latest research on uh, treat, uh, treatment-resistant depression, for example, suggests not surprisingly that there is a fading of the treatment effect uh, a few months later. So it, we may, I, I would predict, we'll end up in an environment where you know, depending on the results, the, the patient may need a booster, if you will, an additional session every, who knows, three months, six months, every year. Um, we'll let the research guide us. Now, I have a question. Uh, we, uh, we have had uh, several years of experience with, with cannabis legalization for medical purposes, medical marijuana, uh, so to speak. Uh, we heard a presentation from Australia uh, where he spoke about the uh, mistakes made when, uh, when decriminalizing or legalizing uh, medical cannabis. I'm wondering, in the United States, do you see any parallels between endocannabinoids and uh, possibly psycho psychedelic drugs? Well, the most important thing to let people know about that comparison is that they're thinking of the often the, the state-level tolerance or legalization of medical cannabis and then later, you know, um, recreational cannabis. But what we're doing is actually more analogous to something that's far less controversial, not controversial at all, really, the approval of Marinol, um, that is PTHC in pill form. That was done back in the 1980s. And again not controversial really at all. That's more analogous here because we're talking about going through the FDA pathway. 
which, you know, if ultimately approved, it makes it legal for medical use across the nation. And, uh, and, and you're also having to be talking about a, you know, as would be required by the FDA, a, a, an exact dosage format that's been extremely well characterized, which is just very different with a plant product like cannabis in an unstandardized form. So in other words, what you're pushing for are psychedelics to be uh, treated as any other drug with the FDA approval. So to speak, although with the caveat is, um, you know, plenty of drugs have additional limitations that the FDA puts on them. For example, if anyone's had an endoscopy or certainly surgery, the drugs they use to knock you out, like propofol, those aren't sent home with people. Um, so there are, you know, and I would imagine it would look like uh, that. And so we recommend that its medical use would be like this research has been conducted where you're in a clinic, you're prepared, you're not left alone. Um, you're followed up for any adverse effects, this type of thing. And of course, uh, in the case of uh, psilocybin and uh, MDMA, these drugs would only be administered by a, a psychiatrist in a clinic. These are not drugs to be taken at home. Right. Or another mental health professional. So because it's would be a prescription drug, a physician, whether psychiatrist or not, would have to sign off on the script. I would say actually the, you know, probably the, the, the people who are actually guiding someone uh, through the experience of therapists in the room um, are more likely to be uh, uh, clinical psychologists, social workers, even nurses, probably not. We're actually going to have a very expensive treatment model if we have to have you know, people with terminal degrees like MDs you know, actually holding the person's hand for six hours in these sessions. And, and that's not needed, although that person, the, the physician, needs to be involved uh, needs to sign off, and frankly, their license needs to be on. The, they don't run their clinic well. That's doing this. It's their license, their professional livelihood that's on the line. Right. So it, this isn't just uh, administering drugs. This is also talk therapy. It's as you say, holding their hand. Uh, there, there's a lot of elements that go with treating uh, treating with psychedelics. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a very specialized treatment. Sometimes there's nominal therapy, and by that, you know, very specific techniques such as cognitive behavioral therapy or or other um, known talk therapies that are used in the treatment of these disorders outside of psychedelics. Um, but uh, sometimes there's not nominal psychotherapy. Nonetheless, even in those cases, there needs to be preparation and support. And whether you call it therapy or not, it's at least very therapy-like. There needs to be a rapport established between these therapists or guides and the patient. Now, I must ask you about adverse effects and, and, and uh, for example, panic attacks. Uh, people going into delirium, people throwing up, uh, uh, people having suicidal thoughts. Uh, uh, it's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to have a psychedelic experience, as you pointed out. Right. And, um, you know, uh, probably the most common thing is just people having what you call the bad trip. I mean, you mentioned panic attack. That's one version of the bad trip. And that's a real thing. Um, someone can potentially do something dangerous to get and get themselves hurt or potentially. And this is rare when people use them, but it does happen. Sometimes someone freaks out and they run across the highway. They get hit by a car. They fall from a height. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising. That happens with alcohol and every intoxicating substance right. at some frequency if it's used in public, etc. So there are risks. There's also some medical risk. Um, uh, relatively speaking, relatively safe at the physiological level, um, psilocybin, the magic mushroom drug, so to speak, is, but um, could be a, a risk for people at, at the more severe levels of heart disease. It modestly raises your blood pressure. So if your doc tells you, hey, don't take the stairs at work, don't shovel snow, you're probably in that category of 
not taking any drug that even modestly and temporarily increases your blood pressure like psilocybin. MDMA has a little more risks, a little more cardiovascular risk, but nonetheless, in the you know, with people who go through a physical and are prepared for the experience, I would argue it's a, a pretty a favorable risk benefit ratio compared to much of what we do in the practice of, of medicine. Very interesting. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about Negative Labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are a consultant to this Israeli-based venture capital company. Um, I imagine that you do not agree to be a consultant or an advisor very lightly. Uh, what made you decide to work with this particular company? Um, I knew some of the individuals involved, and you're right, I've turned down far, far more companies than I've worked with in the industry industry space of psychedelics. But knowing, you know, having the connections before the development of Negative Lab, knowing the some of the individuals involved and knowing they're in this for the right reason, um, really have the patience at, at center, bringing the expertise in business and other areas, but nonetheless you know, aren't out there to, uh, you know, behave unethically and to, you know, just turn a quick buck, you know, that they're truly invested in, in getting something to market to help folks. Wonderful. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome, Larry. This is Larry Luxner for Agent Live in Berlin. Thank you for listening to Agem Live. Visit us online at endocannabinoidmedicine.com.